Say That, the podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jed Brewer. Well, hello. Well, this all the way from Rock Creek, Tennessee is Lee Younger. Live, laugh, love, and gather, Matt. Oh, that's good. We're going to do all of those things in a very swoopy font. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> that's the perfect word to describe that font. Swoopy. Yeah. yeah. Do you think they keep those things separate? Because if you chant those four words over and over, Joanna Gaines just appears in your living room. <laughs> just the Beetlejuice-esque. Yeah. Just a seance. So we have a great show lined up. We got some of your fantastic questions. But as Lee points out, we start with a home decor emergency. Ooh. Not the kind of home decor emergency that was the apartment I lived in before I got married, though I've been informed. <laughs> From multiple, multiple streams, that was such a thing. No, we turn our attention to the Hobby Lobby. Oh. Known uh, crazy right-wing wacko owned business. And I read this headline from the USA Today. Hobby Lobby founder says he's giving away his company because, quote, wealth is a curse. Cool. Huh. Interesting. Hobby Lobby founder David Green announced through an October 21st op-ed at Fox News, sure, that he's giving up his company and that he chose God over wealth. So does that mean uh, he's not going to profit off of the sale of this IP or this company? Well, he doesn't mention anything about giving any of the money back. Oh, cool. Interesting. When I realized that I was just a steward, it was easy to give away ownership at a green whose net worth is $14 billion, according to Forbes. Wow. Now. That's a lot. As we've learned with a certain former president of the United States, uh, the Forbes list is a very uh, self-reported thing, apparently. Ah. But it's probably, even if it's half that, the Hobby Lobby (laughs) guy is worth... 10 over 10 billion dollars. I was yeah. wondering how the uh, picture frames were always half off. In <laughs> That's how, man. <laughs> That's, just... That's how. So, yeah, an economy that makes a lot of sense. The Hobby Lobby guys were at uh, 14 billion dollars. Um, in a separate interview with Fox and Friends, because you know you got a double dip there, um, he pointed out that 100% of the company's voting stock has been moved to a trust. Separate details of how he's giving away the company were not revealed. So he's not giving any of the money back and apparently not liquidating his stock, but he is getting a lot of PR for uh, getting rid of the wealth because it's a curse. Sure. Totally. Hmm. Now, that got us thinking about Hobby Lobby and curses because if there is a sense in which Hobby Lobby might be cursed. Um, It probably would have to do more to do with uh, this headline from NPR in 2018. Hobby Lobby's illegal antiquity shed light on a lost, looted ancient city in Iraq. Oh, interesting. Archaeologist Eckert Fromm didn't have much time to determine where the 4,000-year-old clay tablets had come from. 
Homeland Security officials had given him just two and a half days in a dimly lit New York warehouse to pour over the cuneiform inscriptions etched into the fragile, ancient pieces and report back. Yes, if you didn't hear at the time, uh, Hobby Lobby got busted for illegally importing over 5,000 artifacts from the Middle East, particularly war-torn Iraq. Yeah. That seems like, I mean, it obviously it seems pretty illegal and it sounds like you you did an illegal there, but it also just sounds like a really bad idea from a don't mess with the weird stuff we can't explain in the universe sense of things. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I would I would definitely say that categorically, you know, as part of my understanding of the universe, I don't believe in such a thing as a curse because certainly to, to be a theist is to kind of not believe in such kind of uh, random karmic retributions. However, <laughs> some of the things taken include artifacts being returned to Iraq also include tablets dating from about two, 2500 BC with incantations to the gods. Babylonian letters from between 19 and 1700 BC and hymns from several hundred years before BC. Ancient tablets with uh, prayers and hymns to Near Eastern Iraqi gods. I'm just saying, even if you don't believe in curses, you got to, you got to realize that's running the risk of getting pretty cursed. <laughs> 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 I, I love the idea of the uh the christian version of indiana jones but it starts in a hobby lobby instead of a university yeah oh yeah, yeah. pure flicks presents indiana jones sponsored by hobby lobby <laughs> indiana bob jones if you will oh dude <laughs> oh that's for the win man yeah. that's really oh, wow. good that's really something that you did there. That is. Starring Kevin Sorbo. Oh, absolutely. Who is somehow, even though he's 30 years younger, not as spry as Harrison Ford. Right. <laughs> but he wants to be there so much more than Harrison Ford wants to be in a movie, but his performance is still way worse. <laughs> as with all Pure Flix movies, the whole film is just about a legal battle. Like there's no like actual yeah. like you know fighting bad guys. It's just it's just all courtroom proceedings, and somebody that's yelling at their wife about pizza. <laughs> yes, there would also be the the kind of conflictatory issue for uh, friends at Pure Flix, where there's a very clear bad guy in the Indiana Jones movies, and maybe the kind of current mm. culture would be like, well, there's a lot of there's a lot going on on all sides. <laughs> if you're not of an age to uh immediately be able to roll a dex off the top of your mind who the uh the antagonists in the original indiana jones series are um yeah there's a there's a journey of discovery for you there have fun yeah there's also a kind of i i maybe an opportunity for honesty within the kind of evangelical movement of We've got top men looking into it. Who? Top men. Yeah, that's right. Are they really right. top men? <laughs> well, the toppest of 
people in this field who agree with every minor point of uh, weirdo doctrine we have. So like they're definitely in the upper 50th percentile. I like the idea of Indiana Bob Jones not being afraid of snakes, but just being afraid of like, you know, uh, like the fake flowers section at Hobby Lobby. Oh, that's good. That's good. You know, just some, some random thing that you only find at the, at the, at the Hobby Lobby. And he's just absolutely terrified, but he has to go in there. He's got to, he's got to brave it to get to the cuneiform (laughs) artifacts. So what you're suggesting is that basically almost the entire movie takes place inside of a Hobby Lobby. Oh, dude, I'm all in on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least the first scene, like what, or maybe it's, it's like a Joanne Fabrics and he has to go in and steal something. And it's like a giant uh, ball of yarn that rolls down behind him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There it is. There it is. Just a, just bolts of denim that he has to, <laughs> he's just measuring bolts of, de- there's a lot of denim, I think in the Hobby Lobby, Joanne kind of culture. There's a scene where he has to figure out which, um, novelty mug with an inspiring phrase written oh. on it. Yep. Yep. Oh Yeah. So the I, I think the way to, to structure that is that it's the it's the mug with the inspiring phrase that the first mega church pastor used at the first meeting in their living room with them and ten of their friends. Yeah. Right? There's yeah, you know. there's a lineup of them, like the grail. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Don't talk to me till I've had my coffee. This is truly the cup of someone who inspires a movement. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And then you can tell it's the wrong one because their teeth just get slightly duller. Oh, yes. It's like an anti-whitening strip. He chose poorly. 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 Wow. It's it's been a real 80s movies couple of weeks here on the Say That Podcast, but. I'm here for it, man. I'm loving it. I, I I would be curious to know throughout the history of the show how many episodes we've gone through where we didn't make some obscure 80s or 90s movie reference not many man it's in the minority <laughs> there's no doubt about yeah. that yeah <laughs> i think we're doing the people a service though I, I do love going back to uh the hobby lobby dude i do love there's a quote in this usa today piece wealth can be a curse and in most cases if you drill down on it wealth is a curse in terms of marriage children and things of that nature he said on fox and friends um so we're stewarding our company, and therefore our children come to work, and they get what they earn. Does anybody believe that the Hobby Lobby founders' kids are just like in their stock in the live, laugh, love plaques? Twelve dollars an hour. Yeah, yeah. Really start them out at the hmm. bottom. Probably not. Also, I don't know what this guy thinks stewardship is, but if you have the money and you just have it, that's just having money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is someone who listened to a few too many Dave Ramsey uh spiels about how as long as you are white enough, I guess, and just have a bunch of money, it's technically stewardship if you say, Well, we're gonna give it to someone at some point, probably. Eventually. <laughs> Just doing some stewarding for now and, you know, spending it and using it to make other money through investments. But 
at some point going to be so much giving. Well, I really love the idea of seeking credit for future good works. I would like nice. to be recognized no. right now as the person who uh, solved global hunger. I no. haven't done it yet, but but in the future, I will have. Sure. So <laughs> I would now like to be on Fox and Friends to discuss my accomplishment as the person who who will have solved global hunger. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> there is around kind of white evangelical culture and money. There's just kind of this weird trick they have to pull on themselves. Cause they, the, the whole thing as we talk about a lot, just um, sanctifies greed left, right and center. Yeah. It's the, this is, this is trickle down generosity, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but th- th- there's this, this thing where they, the, the the New Testament is so very clear on greed being bad and the way you are supposed to, you know, don't, do not store up and all that kind of stuff. But everything about the culture is so pointed towards, you know, the the most righteous thing you can do is have a big house and multiple cars and a good uh, healthy savings account that, you know, you get the some one of the ways out of it is the Dave Ramsey just, well, you know, at some point you'll be able to give. Once you have uh, enough money to live on comfortably for the rest of your life, which is exactly how Jesus said to do it. Um, but this <laughs> other one, I, th- I feel like we got a little bit of this guy thought the idea of stewardship was just some kind of weird magic spell. Because you couldn't fix uh, world hunger for $14 billion, but you could put a dent in it. Yep. yep. Like. How rainy is the day you're saving for, my man? Fourteen billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a big chunk of change, man. Like, uh, I get the idea of, you know, you. I don't. I don't think we. You do well to go the other too far the other way and vilify having an emergency fund and stuff. But how full are your envelopes, dude? <laughs> well like as, as an actual you know like a real question here like because i i don't get it like what is dude claiming he has done like i understand he is saying we are engaging in stewardship but like practically speaking has he done anything that benefits anyone else because that that's typically what charitable giving boils down to is like is there any evidence that any of that has occurred or, or are we just kind of making stuff up it feels like semantic jargon yeah, the only other quote in the in the piece is, as an owner, there are certain rights and responsibilities, including the right to sell the company and keep the profits for yourself and your family. Green wrote, as our company grew, the idea began to bother me more and more. Well-meaning attorneys and accountants advised me to simply pass ownership down to my children and grandchildren. It didn't seem fair to me that I might change or even ruin the future of grandchildren who had not even been born yet. It sounds like we're getting like dangerously close to this guy admitting that being this rich totally rots your soul and he doesn't want to do that to his <laughs> to his grandchildren. But again, best I can tell, he's keeping all his income and just moving the uh moving the stock ownership into a trust. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I- I'd like to Wealth's a curse. I'm gonna keep all the money I made. Yeah. But I am a steward now, so things. Well, here's my plan is, you know, because I, I still do work where I, you know, regularly am talking to people that are going through a very hard time in their lives. And, you know, I'm going to wait for the next time that somebody's explaining, you know, I'm I'm about to be 
you know, expelled from this country where I'm a refugee and I don't know what to do. And there's just, there's no funds to pay for anything. And I don't even know. And I'm saying, well, bro, I hear you. I hear you. And it's hard, but here's, here's what I want you to meditate on to give you courage to go on. The gentleman who owns Hobby Lobby and is worth $14 billion has essentially done a tax dodge, transferring ownership of company stock into a trust. So tonight, when you can't sleep, think about that. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I'll leave us with this. And I know we're past the Halloween season here, but it's, it's, I think it's good. Uh, this is back to the tablets found. Uh, Fromm said a database established by Spanish archaeologist Manuel Molina and others helped guide him in determining the origin of the Hobby Lobby antiquities. It was based on inscriptions of other looted tablets that surfaced after the 2003 invasion of Iraq. These tablets marked the first time archaeologists were known to have seen the name Isra Grig, according to cuneiform tablets. So they discovered an ancient Sumerian god wow. via stolen Hobby Lobby tablets. Yeah. Good luck. I mean this 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 is the this is the 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 movie trope that they you know that Geico's making fun of with their commercial where the the teenagers are like I think we should go hide behind that wall of chainsaws. <laughs> yep. You stole an artifact. You stole an artifact where they literally discovered a new ancient god. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's a uh... That's some very first first draft of a King and Stephen King story kind of thing. Right. I it'll shock you here. I'm I'm not a Fox News viewer, but I desperately wish that <laughs> on Fox and Friends when he's talking to us, that like what is like one of them's named like Kill Mead or something, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, one of one of the anchors. It kill me is like, let me stop you right there. Are you being haunted? Yes or no? <laughs> Are you being haunted? I would pay serious <laughs> coin for that question to have happened. Are you, sir? Are you? Answer the question. Are you being haunted by an ancient Sumerian god? Yes or no? Yep. That's the kind of reportage we need, people. Well, we need some bold, fearless reporting. <laughs> Do you think it would be that hard to convince at least, I think there's three of them, so at least one Fox and Friend host just by saying a vaguely Middle Eastern Arabic sounding word that you had invoked some kind of ancient evil and brought it onto the set. <laughs> wow. Because I think they would buy that. On that, we will <laughs> declare emergency off. Hopefully that includes the haunting. Hopefully uh, we did not, just by our a mockery of the Hobby Lobby tablets, uh, bring that upon ourselves. But uh, we, we just want to be clear to any uh, ancient Sumerian, Babylonian, or other uh, specters and spirits that want to haunt the CEO of Hobby Lobby or any other American evangelical figures, we're on your side. <laughs> we think yeah. you're doing good work. Yeah. Look, the emergency may be off, but I feel like the movie Indiana Bob Jones is a go. Indiana Bob Jones and the Hobby Lobby haunting. There it is. <laughs> That's the one. We are going to move on to your final questions here. If you have a question for us, you can handle this all the way to the end. I guess you can touch this where you can scroll down to your episode description and click the links you find there. Our first question comes in and says, I recently read a description of elements of a cult. It included things like a leader who is not to be questioned and everything is part of the plan. And the, the, the people in this group are all that you need. I know not every church is cult-like, but that sounds familiar to a lot of churches. 
how do I know if a church or group can be trusted to not be like this? And I think a a very cool uh, question. And, you know, we live in the era of the Netflix documentary of which cults are a favorite uh, touchstone. So I think this is a pretty common a realization that a lot of people come to when they look at, uh, be it faith communities, political movements, kind of anything that is top-down organized, you can, you can see some some commonalities that could seem disturbing on the surface. So I think this is a, a really cool question. And Jed, where would we kick off here? And I love this question. I think it's really insightful. I think it's really good. Let's start here with something that I'm guessing might not be in your head, but I really I want to encourage you to think about is if you if you attend a church and you give to that church, you are a donor to a nonprofit organization. Let me repeat that for a second. If you attend a church and you give the money, you are a donor to a nonprofit organization. As such, you have a right to ask questions. Yeah. You absolutely have a right to ask questions and to ask hard questions. And I I think you no matter what you do, you need to to know that and that that is the world that you're living in because a lot of churches kind of their vibe is like, man, it's pretty amazing that you get to be here. But um, that's not how this works. Churches are nonprofit organizations. They exist off of donors. If you're a donor, you're one of the people that allows them to exist. So like they they need you uh, probably way, way more than you need them. Here's the question then that I would encourage you to look at asking. Find find someone in leadership, and the more senior, the better, right? Like, the amount of access you're going to get to a really senior leader is going to depend a lot on the size of the church. If you go to a smaller church, you can almost certainly get an appointment with the senior pastor. If you go to a huge megachurch, you probably can't get that. But, you know, get an appointment with the senior most leader that that you have and explain. Like, there's nothing wrong with being like, look, we live in a time and an age when— um, Oh, yeah. All good. Give context. Explain. You know, we live in a time and an age where there's a lot of people that present themselves as something other than what they are. I'm sure that's not the case here, but both as a financial donor to this institution and as a person who um, is just a member of this church, I want to do my due diligence, which is both a wise thing and a godly thing and, and feel good about where I attend and maybe where my family attends and where I, I give money. So on that basis, I just want to ask some questions and I anticipate that you will have nothing but wonderful responses to these questions, but I, I do feel a responsibility to ask them. Let me pause there for a second. What I've just described, no legit person would ever have a problem with that. Oh yeah. And I, I want you to think about that for a second, because that's really, really important. If you, if you went into a business deal and you said, I'm sure this is a great deal, I'm sure it's all above board, but I do need to ask some tough questions because I have a responsibility as a person who's putting money on the line here to make sure that things are what they seem to be, only a fraudster would resent being questioned. So, whoa, 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 Jed, I don't think you're really respecting my biblical authority as a seller. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if there's pushback to the idea of questions and a lot of, hey, whoa, hey, yeah, that is like, dude, no, run, walk, do not uh, do not be there. So if we're at the point where you recognize you have a right to ask questions and you have found someone in leadership and you are expressing that you are about to ask some hard questions and um, you're not getting immediate resistance, which just so you know, I think it's actually likely in a lot of cases you would get immediate resistance. So, you know, be prepared. But I would encourage you to ask the following question. T- 
tell me the last thing you were wrong about. Mm. Tell me the last thing where you realized that your mind needed to be changed and you changed it. And then I'd like you to tell me what that process was like for you. Hit me. So here's the thing about that. Um, Healthy people realize they're wrong about things pretty regularly. And they realize that they're thinking wrongly about things pretty regularly and that they need to make some changes pretty regularly. Like iterative improvement is a part of the human experience. Um, And that should certainly apply to matters of faith and matters of theology and matters of ministerial practice. So a person who is healthy and on the level and legit and not um, running a cult group shouldn't have any problem coming up with an answer to that question and shouldn't have any problem sharing that answer with you. They may not be asked that question regularly, but they should be able to think of, of an answer. If the response is essentially, oh, well, you know, I mean, I get mad at traffic and sometimes, and yeah, I'll say a four letter word, but it's, there's no substance to, I can't really tell you anything in recent memory of substance where I was wrong realized I was wrong, uh, repented, which literally means to change your way of thinking, uh, was wrong, realized I was wrong, repented of it, began to think differently. And, you know, and here's kind of what that was like. Like if they can't give you any example of that, that should concern you. Uh, because that is an and, or of a person who is not working on themselves in any way, in which case they're not really qualified to be a spiritual leader to you. And, or, It's a person that's convinced that they basically have everything figured out and figured out just right, which that there's literally no one for whom that is true. So that would be real, real, real bad. And that would be something that would point in kind of that overbearing culty direction. But I think those give you some good places to start. And that that would be my suggestion, again, at least as an initial sketch. I think it's a great place to start off. And one thing I would would add to what uh, Jed said there is. You also want to be very careful. It's a great question. It was last time I changed mind. Also be very aware of if you're getting an answer or a sermon. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because there can be the thing. Well, you know, I realized that I just wasn't trusting myself and have faith and like this. If also not great, if someone can't have a human conversation yep. Yep. for yep. Their, yep. Uh, their ability to react, relate to people like they're humans, which is a big part of what we're getting at here. So Lee, a lot of great stuff from Jed there. What would we add? Yeah, I, I mean, that stuff from Jeb was great, especially just the specificity of those questions. Uh, can a person uh, can a person demonstrate humility uh, w- when you straight up invite them to do so? That's fantastic stuff. Um, I, I would I would encourage you to kind of look around at at a 30,000 foot view of this church where you're going and ask this question, like if I if I zoom all the way out. What is this place about? What are they what are they selling here? What 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 is what are we promoting? Are we promoting our like is it promoting its own self or is this place about like caring for people and serving people and making people's lives better? Um that's a really really important question. Um one of the things that um I, you know, I've been involved with um you know, with young people who come to know the Lord and then go off, particularly at colleges, universities, and get involved with with certain ministry groups that, you know, they they have certain hints of of some of these kind of culty kind of things. And one of the things that you 
that like that you see with those groups is that they exist in a lot of ways purely to keep their thing going. Like everybody's job is to keep this thing existing. So the money goes to that. There's a real strong sense of, of like, we are all stacking hands. And the point of this is this thing is amazing and we're going to keep this going. And usually at the center of that is not just this group or this name or this brand or this church, but a person. We want to keep this person going. This person is truly amazing. They're at the center and the heartbeat of the whole thing. So as you look at that question, look at this as well. What are the leaders like? What are the leaders of this thing about? Are are the leaders of this thing um, about um, taking care of people, serving people? Um, Like, are they controlling or do they delegate like a really, really a uh, good kind of litmus test for a group like this is how do the leaders feel about you coming sometimes and then going to another group at other times? How do the leaders feel about you? Um, you know, the, the, the movies that you watch and the books that you read, um, how do the leaders feel about you hanging out with and being friends with and having groups that you do recreational things with that are not part of this group, that are not part of this church or not part of this organization. All of those kinds of things are really, really important questions because um, a group that's on that cultier side of things, it like they are all about this group. They are all about the person that's at the center of this group and they want to make sure that they have as much control as possible over the way that you spend your time, where you give your money, and the kinds of things you expose yourself to. So if you find yourself in one of these groups that's like, oh no, we no, no none of us read Harry Potter because you can't, you can't read Harry Potter and be on the right thing or whatever. If people are con- censoring or controlling what you know, the books that you read or the shows that you watch or whatever the thing is, or the people that you hang out with, that's when you want to head in a different direction. Again, what is this place about? Is it about serving people? Is it about keeping itself going? And then when you look at some of that, is it about really keeping a person going? And are they, are they about serving people or are they about controlling behavior? Are they about controlling your relationships, who you hang out with, what you do with your money? All of those things, those are all important things to look at. Absolutely right. That's fantastic stuff from both of these guys. A couple of kind of red flag things I will throw out there to look at, because I think part of the the issue here and where the confusion can come in is, as you kind of point to in your question, there are a lot of structures and things that come up just by nature of an organization being an organization. It doesn't necessarily make it good, bad, or indifferent. Um, you know, it's probably going to have a leader. You know, the, just because there is, just because a church has a head pastor, or just because a company has a CEO or something, doesn't necessarily mean that that is uh, sinister. Um, if yes, if it is, uh, if you find out that no one is ever questioning any of the decisions they make in any way, shape, or form, that's probably concerning. But that's where the concern comes in. It, it can be easy to kind of get a little over paranoid when you start to notice these, these patterns around, but 
a couple of those that I think a couple of things that I think are a good kind of thumbs up, thumbs down. Is is this good or not? The uh, the kind of cultivation and to unnecessary to uh, unintentionally do some punnery there. The kind of cultivation and formalizing of an inner circle situation. Like, you know, all organizations have you know leadership groups and, you know, somebody these people are close to. And, you know, if you're, you know, the person in charge may have people they that have been around for 10, 20 years that they, you know, seek counsel from, that's all good and healthy. But the idea of like, well, there's the super special group of people. And if you mm-hmm. play your cards right, you could find out what's going on in there. And wouldn't that be pretty cool? And don't you want to impress us so you get to be in the super special inner circle. That's I can't think of a way for that to not be a problematic idea, whether or not it's cultic and the, the, and a big one that another one where it's just, if we hit on this, that's going to be an issue is any idea of, we don't need to let other people know what goes on in here. Yeah. Any kind of like you, whatever we, handle problems within the family or we want to make sure we keep things in house or we don't want to, um, we want to make sure that our reputation stays good. So if you have a problem, you can bring it to none of that. That is, there's no way for that to be good. There's no way for that to be healthy. There are a million ways for that to go super duper bad. Um, if particularly in a Christian context, uh, is right there in uh, black and white letters that the truth will set you free. So if you, anyone tries to slide any of, well, let's not, you know, people might not understand and we don't want to, that's a, that's a full on red flag, get out, go find somewhere else to be. And again, a lot of these things are not going to be that cut and dry, but uh, this is also a thing that's going to land on. You got to trust your gut sometimes. Um, Mm. You don't have this. We've talked a lot on the show about how if you, whether it's breaking up with someone or leaving a church or leaving a group, whatever, you don't have to have an ironclad legal argument. Um, this this feels weird and I don't want to be here is a perfectly reasonable one. Uh, so if that's where you are, you are also perfectly free to trust your own instincts on that. We're going to move on to our second question here. It comes in and says, is there a difference between judging someone and wanting them to do better? I think this is uh, another very interesting question. And wanting to do better, I think, can have a lot of meanings here. And I think that's where we're going to get some interesting stuff there. Of We could want them to do better for themselves. We could want them to do better in a context where they are behaving a certain way towards us. A lot of, a lot of valid ideas towards uh better there, Jed, but how do we differentiate that from just being down on how someone is? Yeah, no, that's a great question. That's really, really good. Um, here's kind of the, the brass tacks bottom line version. I would tell you is um, it's the difference between you're a loser versus this thing you're doing isn't working. Right. Those are two completely different statements. And if you can dig it, and I encourage you to think about this, it's actually really freeing to focus on outcomes rather than ascribing moral qualities. Mm. I want you to think about that for a second. Like, particularly if you've grown up around church stuff, people spend so much time and energy trying to figure out what's morally good and morally bad and morally right and morally wrong and hardly any time and attention just looking at what works yeah. what what is um effective versus ineffective what is functional versus dysfunctional and you may note that 
that in a lot of ways is one of the tests that Jesus applied to everything. He's talking about, you know, good trees bear good fruit, man. Um, if it's if it's not bearing any kind of good fruit, it's uh, God's probably not up in it. Um, that is another way of describing effective versus ineffective. So again, to your to your core question, uh, what's the difference between judging someone and wanting them to do better? It, to me, it's the difference between you're a loser versus this thing you're doing isn't working. And I think that if you start to go down kind of that avenue of thought, what you're going to find is that effective versus ineffective is going to allow you to analyze all kinds of things in a much more useful way, right? You can look at theology and say, hey, I'm, I'm not saying if it's good or bad, but I'm saying this theology isn't working. This theology is not yielding good results in this community, in this church, in people's lives. It is, it's not working. It is not functional. It's not effective. You can actually do the exact same thing with politics. You can, you can look at political views and say, this political view does not yield good outcomes. Um, I, don't, I don't have to describe it as morally good or morally bad. It does not lead to good outcomes. And there is a, man... I can't tell you how powerful it is in life to decide I am a person who cares about outcomes. Mm. There are some people who will tell you that they care about outcomes, but very few people truly, truly, truly care about outcomes. If you become a person and you decide, I don't need things to look a certain way. I don't need them to feel a certain way. I just need them to produce a certain outcome. Man, you have no idea how much better everything in life is going to go. Uh, how how much more you will enjoy your life, how much better you will you will feel about your life. Like one of the worst prisons to be in is I need I kind of need outcome X, but the only way I'm prepared to get there is through A followed by B followed by C. Um, hey, good luck. I hope it works out. It probably won't. If it hasn't worked out so far, it's probably not going to suddenly change in the future. But an outcomes orientation blows things wide open. And again, that can be applied to individuals. What, you know, are we judging or not? But it can be applied to all kinds of situations. It can be applied to theology and politics and workplaces and business deals. It's really powerful stuff. And I really want to encourage you to consider incorporating that tool into the way that you look at the world. That's a fantastic place to start that off. And Lee, what would we have to add there? That's all awesome stuff. I, I love where Jeb was taking us on that. And I, I, I would start with just a really, really broad question that sounds really simplistic. And, and you were first taught this in kindergarten as, as I was, and as all the rest of us were, um, if you were to think about the idea that there was something in your life that you probably needed to make a change on. Let's imagine that's the case. And it's something simple. It's not something huge or anything like that, but it's something that you should probably make a change on. How would you want those closest to you to approach you on that? And how would you super not want those close to you to handle that situation? Um, some things, if, if I perform that thought experiment myself, I can tell you some things right off the bat. I would not want anybody in my life who wanted to who wanted to confront me or 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 talk to me about some changes I need to make. I would not want them um all going around behind my back talking about me. I I would want people in my life to have the courage and the kindness to approach me. 
Um, I would not want people to assume they understand my perspective without asking me what my perspective is. Um, I would want them, I, I like what Jed said there, instead of, instead of dealing with, you know, all, all of my motives and, and my internal perspective, that, that we would be talking about what's working and what's not working. We would be talking about outcomes. So that being, that being said, just kind of like, how would you want this done to you? How would you like it? Um, I think that simple little old school thing that we were all kind of confronted with in elementary school um, is, is a, it's just kind of a good place to, for us to start to think um, about whether or not what we're doing is judging or helping. Um, I think some important, just based off the way that I feel about it, I think some important diagnostic questions to answer would be like questions like this. Um, am I rooting for this person? Or am I just kind of talking about this person? That's an important question, man. And I, I can't tell you how many times in different environments, whether that's workplace stuff or ministry circles and stuff like that, you get the feeling with certain people, they just really get fired up about talking about people. Like if they've got something good and juicy to talk about, that's what energizes them more than anything. Um, am I making a call on this person's motives or their internal perspective? Um, or are we talking about what's healthy for them or what's working like Jeb was talking about? Am I in a role in this person's life where who would normally speak to what needs to change about them? So am I a, a counselor, a pastor, a spouse, a parent, a supervisor? Uh, is this my role? Um, in other words, am I, or do we have that kind of friendship or that kind of relationship? And this is the last question. I think this is a really, really important question. Am I willing to help this person if they are ready to make some changes? Am I willing to help and be a part of that process? I think questions like that are really good and centering questions to figure out, am I in a place, am I in a place of judgment or am I in a place of helping? Um, and if, if you perform that original thought experiment on yourself and just say, how would I want someone close to me who cares about me to help me make some changes that I need to make? You might come up with some some other diagnostic questions that 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 I haven't even thought of, but I think that's a great place to start to think, how would I want people who are close to me and care about me to approach me if I needed to make some changes? It's just a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, I would add on to the end here to kind of take that rubric that, that Lee has given you there and kind of fold it back into uh, something Jed was talking about with the, the outcomes versus the process. And one of the things I think can be a good internal check for us when we're talking about to or about, or just thinking about other people's issues is, are we trying, are we hoping for a good outcome for them? Or are we trying to prescribe a course of action that we think they should take with their lives? Because the first can, it's pretty easy to keep that in a good place. Kind of as soon as you switch to the second one, judgment's going to, come roaring into that. Um, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. As a concrete example, let's say, you know, uh, some, you, let's say there's an p- older parent who, you know, their child is maybe just kind of high school or just graduated college or whatever. And they want, they're very, they want them to get their first job and they want them to get something that's on you know, good footing and sets them off on a good solid uh, career uh, footing for their lives. That's a fine thing to want for someone, you know, financial stability and, um, a good solid job and then be able to take care of themselves and you know, support a family if that's what they want to do. That's great. As soon as that turns into, 
Um, well, you know what you got to do is you got to print out your resume and you got to go to, you got to go to this, the place and tell them you're not going to take no for an answer until you put that paper resume in somebody's hand. Now you're just, you're just a fan kind of fantasy casting someone else's life with a thing that's not going to work. And this ceases to be about an outcome for them. And it kind of becomes a vehicle for the way the parent thinks the world should work. And <laughs> there's a lot of like hey, kids today don't know. And we had to work and I, I just walked into the store and grabbed a broom and I swept for free for three years until they made me the vice president or whatever. Um, but you can see that switch from like, I want this good thing for this person. That's cool. And I know how they should go about getting it. That's going to be a problem a hundred times out of a hundred. And yeah. if you're not, if you don't watch it, uh, we all have this with other people it's a pretty easy switch to make as well, probably depending on um, the situation in your relationship to the person. And we're going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says recent celebrity craziness has me thinking about whether I can still enjoy someone's music. If I know they believe awful things, does that apply to Christian stuff as well, or even more so if someone ends up involved in scandal or leaving the faith, how do we treat their work? I think the, again, another very cool question. Um, certainly uh, a lot coming out uh, recently where you say, well, yes, the beats were good, but the mind that uh, brought us the beats had a whole lot of other stuff going on apparently. So uh, uh, that's an odd thing to feel. But then when we do mix in that religious element, and we were talking in the last episode about, um, you know, that emotional connection that people can have with worship stuff and how that can be uh, very affecting kind of in one way or the other. So when we wrap that up with now a totally outside person, a lot more emotional stuff can go on there. So real interesting question, a lot of layers, but Jed, where would we start? It's a great question, man. And I I would want to begin by saying, I don't think there's one right answer to this. Uh, And so I'll tell you what I think. Uh, If it's useful, great. If it's not, toss it. Um, I want to start with kind of a left and right boundary thing, which is to say, so you're basically wondering, there's media that I like, but some of the people who are involved turns out kind of awful, you know, and am, am I still allowed to like it? So I think the one boundary I would encourage you to look at is, is the media itself problematic, right? So in other words, like there are bands like in heavy music, there are bands that use music directly as a tool to promote white supremacy. Um, and so like, if you were, this is an extreme case, obviously, but if like, you're like, I discovered I was listening to Nazi music. You should probably not listen to Nazi music anymore. Like that would, right. that, that would be, that would be bad. But what do I do just to, you know, pick a situation at random. If the music has nothing to do with any of that, it's just pop music, but it turns out some of the people involved hold really messed up views that, you know, kind of go in that direction. All right. Here's what I think. Probably don't give that person any more money that that might be a, a good place to begin. Past that, I think it's it really boils down to this question that only you can answer is, does this still serve you? Mm. Do you still have fun with this? Is it still, does it get you pumped up? Does it get you relaxed? Does it do whatever it is that you want it to do? Does, does this still serve you? Because if it still serves you, great, man. That's awesome. That's, that's fantastic. If it, if it doesn't really do it for you anymore, then let it be. Um, you don't. You don't have to keep listening to things if you don't want to, but if you like it, that's cool. This does, though, point then to a few things that are kind of corollaries that go along with this. 
you're allowed to keep liking what you like. So are other people. You're allowed to not like what you don't like anymore. So are other people. You don't. You want to not flaunt your media choices in front of other people because you don't know what they're going through. But you also don't have the right to judge other people's media choices. And I think it's really important to embrace that with any people's media preferences, especially with music, are so personal, man. And there's a story behind them. And here's the thing is there's a reason that this other person likes this music. There's a reason that they connect with it. And if you don't know what that reason is, you shouldn't be judging it. Um, we, we are at a point where there's a temptation to, to do certain kinds of holier than thou, especially when it comes to, to media choices. I'd, I'd encourage you not to do that. I'll give you a story just to kind of, you know, where you need to know the background and if you don't, you shouldn't judge it. Like you might've heard the phrase before, don't meet your heroes. And man, that's super true. Um, like if you've got a band that you really like or an artist that you really like, never meet them. <laughs> seriously so there's this when i was in high school i was into this kind of of heavy music called industrial rock that was that was industrial metal was really what i was into and there's this one band that was so tight and so talented and like my college band literally our last show together we opened for those guys and we opened for them at this super historic uh music venue in chicago where like the rolling stones have played there like it's it's a big deal and like we had a green room we had everything our name and lights we had tickets through Ticketmaster, and the show sucked and it's not because we did a bad job or or because they did a bad job they were just jerks like i was so pumped to like i'm gonna meet my heroes man it's gonna be amazing and then like like I don't know if you've ever been in a room where like the people are so uncool. It's like, you can smell it when you walk in, like you just walk in like, Oh, Oh, Oh no. Oh no. And then the, the, the smell was not inaccurate. It, it continued on that trend of like, Oh man, these people suck, dude. Okay. So here's the thing is, and this, that'd be literally like 20 years ago at this point, I have not listened to their music a single time since then. Um, (laughs) and, the music didn't change. Like it was, it was a tasty, crunchy sound before. It's just, I don't, I'm not there, man. I, I don't enjoy it anymore. Like, you know, I, I know you guys are jerks and I had to deal with that and I had to deal with the letdown. I don't want to listen to your music anymore, but I have friends who did not have that experience that I had who still listen to this band. Okay. It's cool for them to listen to the band. It's not, it's not like them being, um, weird towards me or something. They weren't there. You know, they don't, they don't know that, but it's also cool for me to not listen to it because I did have that experience. So figure out if it still serves you, if it still serves you, enjoy it. Maybe be aware of who you're enjoying it in front of, because we don't want to needlessly set other people off, but don't, don't judge the things that you like, but don't judge what other people like either. There's almost always more going on than what we're aware of. A fantastic point, a great place to start that off. And Lee, where do we close it out? Well, first of all, I, I mean, there's so much in my in my notes and my head. I was just like that was exactly what Jed already talked about. And 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 I'm so glad that he pointed out the extreme cases because you know, usually when we talk about extreme cases as far as the left and right limits, we're 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 talking about things you might not run into very much. And yet and this is especially it's not just true with with media like um with with media like music production 
But there is a lot of iconography, uh, sculpture, and uh, visual art these days that, like, it's extreme. It's a, yeah. It is the extreme case. I mean, the state where I live, I mean, until about 14 or 15 months ago, had a bust of, had a, a sculpture, the bust of uh, one of the founding members of the KKK in our state capitol. Um, in a niche and like the, the, the so-called extreme cases are they're they're not that extreme. I mean, especially when we talk about the, the kind of art that people enjoy, the kind of art people hang in their homes, the kind of art that you see in public spaces, it can be really extreme all over the place. So I'm so glad that Jed pointed that out. My, my notes are very similar. I mean, you get to listen to what you like and you get to, you get to decide you're done listening to a band or a, an artist or whatever. One of the things I want to point out, particularly with Christian stuff, is I just want to highlight and underline something that was so important that Jed said in his response, which was the question, do you know why you like this thing? Yeah, That's a really important question. Um, it's a really important question for people that grew up in the Christian thing because we were not allowed to think like that. <laughs> we were told what to listen to and what to like. Uh, and And I'm... I'm not that's not an exaggeration. I mean, the the uh the the Christian leadership apparatus created an entire subgenre of of musical art. And um and that was what everybody was allowed to like. There there were the Christian rap bands, there were the Christian rock bands, there were the Christian country bands, there were the Christian pop bands. There were the they had the the Christian thing had a subgenre for everything, and that's what you were allowed to like. That's what you were allowed to enjoy. As a result, nobody knew why they enjoyed anything. We weren't. We simply weren't allowed to inspect this question. Um, <laughs> one of my very dear friends, who is a a longtime friend of everybody hosting this podcast, and and a, a longtime friend of the show. He was, um, he went to high school at a, a boarding school for like Christian missionary kids and they weren't allowed to own any music that wasn't Christian music. So there was a Christian band back in the day called, um, Petra. Is that the right name for that band? Petra means rock. Ah, uh-huh. um, I, I never, <laughs> some of these bands that I didn't listen to, I'm always afraid I'm going to get the, the name wrong or whatever, but. They were allowed to like Petra. They were not allowed to like Pearl Jam. Aha! Um, they had, our, our dear friend had a Walkman. Um, for the young people, this is a device that would play cassette tapes into your headphones. And um, what they did was, that, and this is what the, you know, uh, legalism does sometimes inspire ingenuity. So they uh, took the cassette of a Petra tape apart and took the cassette of a Pearl Jam tape, Pearl Jam tape apart, and they moved the spool, the actual tape, from the Pearl Jam album into the plastic case of the Petra cassette, closed that cassette back up, and they were able to listen to the Pearl Jam album ten. And whenever the 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 uh, teachers or the dorm parents or whatever would say, "Open that Walkman, let's see what cassette you're listening to," then you know they would produce this tape that has the Petra song list and the Petra album. And meanwhile, Jeremy spoke in class today. 
was pumping into the headphones. I, I mean, can't understand the... what that guy's saying, but it's bound to be some kind of satanic incantation. <laughs> Sir, I remember getting on the bar. He got, really, he got really close to the note that time. <laughs> um, and with the satanic whatever. But all, all that to say, like, there was a lot of behavior control in Christian culture for a, a long, long, long time. But what that bred into a lot of people was they did not inspect this extremely important question that Jed asked, which is, and, and understand when I, when I say this, I'm not implying any kind of moral judgment on this. Do you know why you like what you like? Do you know why? Have you inspected that? Have you asked that question? One, that's an important thing because it could lead you to discover other things that you might really like. But two, it allows you to make changing decisions when things like this happen. Do I know why I like this artist? Yeah, I like it for these reasons. Well, it turns out this artist is a gigantic jerk face type person or a really, really creepy person or a really terrible person. Okay, do I want to keep listening to that? Well, let's go back and inspect why do it, why did I like this in the first place? I think it's one of the most important questions for anybody to look at, but especially Christian folks who grew up um, during the time of so much behavior control when they really, really were not actually allowed to ask questions like that. I think it's a fantastic point, and it it kind of dovetails with, I think, a good place to end this, which is, uh, and I, I'm on a podcast with two very talented musicians. You put out a lot of music that's helped a lot of people and have done a lot of good. Here's the thing. Music's not that deep. <laughs> yeah. As as Jed has been a fondest thing over the years, it's just noises. Yeah, it's bleeps and bloops, man. So that's fine. Hey, it can, <laughs> it can be great. It can have lead to emotionally affecting experiences and people you know, fall in love to it and it brings people out of bad moods and it makes, you know, a, you know, a cinematic, great cinematic swelling score can be an amazing thing to, to add to a, a movie and all that stuff. But there's nothing inherently moral about one set of bleeps and bloops over another set of bleeps and bloops, which is another thing that is, as Lee points out, kind of Christian culture is kind of gets wrong coming and going, but listening to one side of things doesn't really make it immoral to the other side of things. So you can kind of put that off. It's 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 not magic. So to one of the examples you use in your question, if somebody wrote a song about Jesus that connected a lot to you and they very publicly don't believe in Jesus anymore, uh, the song's still there, still fine. If you get something out of it, that's perfectly reasonable. Um, uh, and a lot of, here's, here's an uncomfortable fact for a lot of us because I think even outside of Christian culture, just kind of in mainstream culture, we do like the idea that in order to make a really affecting piece of art, because for a piece of art to affect us on a deep level and, you know, uh, connect to us emotionally, we want to think that that was made by someone who is uh, pure of heart and uh, morally upright. Uh, a lot of very, very talented artists are awful, awful people. Yeah. <laughs> I give to you pretty much every bit of rock and roll made between 1950 and 1985. Um <laughs> Led Zeppelin's a really good band. You would not leave your dog in a room with any of the original members. Yeah. Save possibly John Paul Jones, but you know, know. basis only half count. We all know that. (laughs) Uh, So, but here's the thing. Black dog, still a really, really cool song. Yeah, that is one way or the other. It's not, not that big a deal, but there are other considerations. So one, and maybe the most important one, as these guys have pointed out, is there something about this that bums you out now? Like, mm. 
if you learned something about the people who made this piece of art and now when you listen to it, kind of just describing with the dummy here is just like, yeah, it's it's still a good beat, but all I can think about is the thing that dude said on Twitter. Well, then you're not enjoying the song. There are other songs you will enjoy. Move on. That's cool. Kill it. Yeah. The other thing, then this one kind of sucks, but it's worth pointing out is because so because art is so kind of hyper politicized in a certain way. When someone comes out who makes music, for example, or movies or whatever, and says something awful, they gain a lot of fans. Because they said something awful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Certain websites and Twitter users and whatever are now like very pro this rapper because they said an anti-Semitic thing. Yeah. They've now become a fixture in a culture in the culture war. So what that means is if you wear your your t-shirt because you like that rapper, or people see that when the you know album art pops up on your phone at the gym or whatever. Now that is broadcasting something that it wasn't before. Yep. Yeah. And that is also something we need to be cognizant of, of what we're putting out into the world. Um, it's, it's a bummer. You can certainly listen to whatever you want in your own headphones, but uh, particularly if you uh, look a certain way that the three uh, hosts on this show happen to look in a melanin sense, uh, you may have been listening to that dude for 10 years, but people are going to notice, huh? That guy said a thing. And after the guy said a thing, I'm seeing you listen to it. So there's that. So also, uh, art not only uh, communicates things to us, but the art we consume does communicate some things uh, to other people. And sometimes it's uh, things we wish it didn't. So uh, always worth uh, keeping your eye on as you're trying to navigate the world, uh, connect with people, be a positive force in the world, which we know that the fine people who listen to this show are. We're going to take out with a song this week. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, we'll take you out with some rock and roll by, made by only the most wholesome of people, our own Jed Brewer and our friend Lynn Sunday yeah, yeah. called No, He Wasn't. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Two men go to the chapel. Two men go to the church. The first steps up to the microphone to give the speech that he's rehearsed. And begins to brag about how clean he keeps his nose He's well-behaved and generous And comes his crescendo
spoke up and weighed him Said his peace and made his move Said that second guy's alright with me Yeah, there's freedom in the truth Son, you are forgiven So go in peace Whoever has promised Will receive God was not unkind No, God was not unkind Oh, he wasn't.